Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, all right. 1762, Cambridge Press. This would be Cambridge third edition. So you can thank them for all your heartbreak and trouble because they got this ball rolling. This is the third time they have made an update to the 1611 KJV. (laughs) The refinements that took place here were very similar to those of 1638. Spelling, punctuation were updated. The work done here is said to be done with diligence, exactness, and moderation. All right, so 1762 and 1769 both, but particularly this update was extremely important. All right, so, and you hear it all the time today, but shouldn't we modernize the Bible? Can't we just bring it to modern English? No, you can't. By the time you get to 1769, the the Bible is as modern as it can be without damaging what God said. That's what happened in, in 1769 and 1762. They modernized the King James Bible. They brought the grammar, the punctuation, uh, you know, the, the, the commas, hyphens. I mean, things like that. They introduced those type of things. Spelling. I mean, you're looking at a copy of the 1611. And it says what our modern Bible says. But it's not as easy to read. Uh, you know, this, this, a church in America gave me this Bible as a gift. It's a beautiful Bible. And unbelievably easy to read. It, just something about the format and the layout. It, it's, it's very nice to read. It's, it's very well put together. I don't care about the cross-references. And I, what I don't like is how soft the leather is. It's a little too, you know, when you're holding it, it's like falling on itself. Um, I prefer slightly thicker leather. And so my other Bible... At home, which was a gift given to me by somebody that I love dearly, both in Matthew and in Mark, it has a lowercase spirit. Now, for me, that's a problem. Because as I run the cross-references in 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All right, so you had one lowercase s, right? Look, look in Luke chapter 4 and see what yours says. <laughs> Everybody's. If you didn't have a, if you didn't have a lowercase spirit, then you don't. Have <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm not sure what verse. Oh, it should be verse one. It should be. Tell me what verse one is. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. Capital, right? Yes. All right. So now here's the problem. All right. So I have, if I have this Bible. And, 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 and the Bible that I have, it's called an Allen Bible. It's, it's printed and put together by, by Allen, who is from Oxford. Allen Bibles. I mean, somebody gave me this Bible. I didn't buy it. Somebody gave it to me. It's a $265 Bible. It's a beautiful, very nice, very well-made Beautiful leather, solid. I mean, it's a, it's a great, great Bible. But in Ma- Matthew, Matthew 4, 1, it says spirit. In Mark 1, 12, it says spirit. But then in Luke 4, 1, it says Holy Ghost. That's a problem for me. As what I was teaching, I'm teaching through Matthew in Sunday school, and I, I, had, I hadn't noticed it was a lowercase s until I was standing in front of everybody teaching. And, it, and I'm trying to explain to them why it's a lowercase s, and in my mind I'm like, why is it a lowercase s? <laughs> like, I hadn't noticed that before. And then Brother Keith comes up to me afterwards, and he and I have had a conversation or two about Cambridge versus Oxford, and people fight over it and all that. Now, fleeth versus flieth, I, I'm not, I don't care. But lowercase Holy Spirit versus the actual Holy Ghost, that's a bit of a problem. At least it is for me. Um, I'm not willing to go that far. Because we know it was, it was God, it was the Holy Spirit who drove Jesus into the wilderness. So why would I change that to a lowercase s anywhere in those passages? Well, they did that in the 1769 version. And so this Bible, we had, I, I kept it in storage. And, and you know, I, if my other Bible wore out in 20 years, then I would use this one. <laughs> And so I get this one out, and I check Matthew, and I check Mark, and they both say capital S. I was like, oh, well, Nahum must say flieth. And I go, and I look, and it says fleeth. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm, I just, in my mind, I can't settle with this. That, that's a problem for me. You'll have to decide for yourself on that one. So in 1762, I don't remember how we got off all this, refinements. Uh, took place here. Uh, the refinements that took place here were very similar to the 1638 spelling and punctuation. The work done here is said to be done with diligence, exactness, and moderation. They were very careful. That is not what happens today when people are going to up, update the Bible. You know, the new King James is supposed to be an update to the King James Bible. Well, why did you remove hell? Why did you remove the word Lord referring to Jesus Christ hundreds of times? 
Like, why'd you do that? How's that an update? How does that help anything? Like, you, you, you damaged the text. You, you destroyed the Word of God when you did that. And so there's no excuse for that. Uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not going that way. Um, the, contempor- the contemporary to this update is the 1769, which we're going to talk about next, by Oxford Press, which is said to have taken more liberty than the work at Cambridge. Now, this is the interesting thing. There, there's this, as you read all these books about the history of the King James Bible, they spend a lot of time on the 1762 and the 1769. They all say the 1762 was better than the 1769, and the 1762, they took more care than the 1769. But the 1769 became the future standard. So why or how? One of the guys suggested, um, so they give you the names of the guys who did these, these two, the 1762 and 1769. And um, the guy who did this, his name was Paris, P-A-R-R-I-S, is his last name. And um, not long after he finished his work and they began printing it, the, the, the printing shop where they were printing this Bible burned down. And along with it, the, the, the carved font <laughs> burned down. And so some people suggest that the reason this died out so quickly is because fire kind of ruined his ability to continue printing it. There weren't even that many that got printed. But then the 1769 came out just seven years later, and, uh, and it, was, it was the talk of the town. But both works are considered to have modernized the English Bible in a meaningful manner. So both these, these works modernized the 1611 Bible. So you had, you had a different type font, you had different ortho, uh, orthography, you had uh, uh, standardized spelling. So you had J's instead of I's, and you had U where it was supposed to be, and V where it's supposed to be, and instead of an F, you have an S, and you, know, you had all these things that were, that were brought into, into the modernization process in, in 1762 and 1769. So by the time you get to 1762 and 1769, you essentially have this book that's in front of you. And I would, I would suggest with what I've learned so far, if you have anything from 1611 to 1769, you have the Word of God. After that, they start taking more liberty than they want to, or than they should have. They want to take the liberty, they just shouldn't have taken such liberties. Next, you have 1769, Oxford. Oxford University Press printed a KJV that was further refined, apparently, according to the historians. Um, Oxford Press began printing, they, be, they began printing Bibles in general in uh, 1645. Let me make sure I remembered that right before you write that down. No, 1675. That's a seven, I promise. So, I, and, and, and actually, uh, Teo has a great example of it in that small Bible she has, they actually printed the license in the front of that Bible given to the printer by Queen Victoria. And, um, and so it, it, it has the details of the license that was granted to the printer. So in, in England, you didn't just open a print shop and decide, I think I want to print the Bible. You had to have a copyright given to you from the king. Now, this wasn't a copyright the way we think of copyrights today. 
you know, where, you know, this is a Thomas Nelson Bible, and, um, you know, they have a copyright on this book, but they don't have a copyright on the King James Bible. Anybody today can print the King James Bible anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can't print the Luganda Bible, so there's a copyright. You can't print the NIV, there's a copyright. They own that copyright and so that company owns the copyright, and you have to pay them or give them royalties or go through their process to get permission to print their Bibles. Well, in this day, the king had the copyright, and that's it. <laughs> if he gave you permission to print, he would give you a license that allowed you to print, and that was it. So, so this, the license was given to Oxford in 1675. It was said of this edition that, that there may never be need to update the Bible further. Now, that's... That's a big statement for you to make about the book you're working on. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to do this so well, nobody will ever need to do it again. Well, it turns out that that was sort of true um, because it's this Oxford edition that did this, that changed spirit. And it's the Oxford edition that changed fleeth to flieth or flieth to fleeth. And so... Where, where it is true of the Oxford edition is the modernization it brought to the Bible. That stayed, and that became the standard you know, from, from here on out. Uh, where it's not true is that many people went back to the 1611 spelling of, of these words. So fleeth went back to flieth in, in many Bibles, as you can see in this room. And, um, so, and there's other examples. There are other places where they made these, these type changes. Um, I just, those are the ones I remember in my head. If I knew you were going to enjoy it so much, I would have made a longer list <laughs> and so brought it to they, you. They, they went back to the right spelling, 1762? No. No, 1762, they did update spelling, but in 1769 is when they made the changes that we just looked at. So when did they go back? Much later, after the 1800s. In the 1800s, there was an uproar about all these changes being made to Bibles, and a man named Thomas... We'll get to his name. Um, I forget his last Curtis. Thomas Curtis. Uh, he wrote some pretty harsh letters to Cambridge and Oxford. And he's like, you had no authority to do this. So you need to fix it. You better standardize the Bible, and it better be standardized in accord with the King James Bible. It is the authorized version. So what you're doing is you're, you're, it's out of control, and it needs to stop. And, and so he, he played a major role in, in getting people to kind of curb this and go back to uh, making a standard King James Bible that is based on the 1611 as, as best as possible, but with the 1769 and 1762 modernization, and, and that became the standard for our future Bibles. Now, People still toy with it. You still have King James Bible. You have a number of editions that came after that, but nobody, nobody cared. Nobody used them. Everybody knew that even today, still today, in America, there are one of three places we, we get our Bibles. Uh, Cambridge, Oxford, or uh, local church publishers. And uh, I'm 99% sure they use the Cambridge text. And then uh, some people are starting to use now. It's a Canterbury Bible made by Schuyler. 
Tyler is the uh, the printer, and um, I I've looked at it. It's been a while, but I'm ninety percent sure it's the Cambridge text. It's a they make probably the most beautiful Bibles you'll ever see today. Um, very expensive, uh, uh, but but it, it it is. I'm pretty sure it's the Cambridge text, and um, only m- most of the Oxford Bibles still have these these spelling changes. They they stuck with the 1769. Now Cambridge, we'll talk about. I don't want to get ahead of myself. It's it's in the notes, so it will just end up being redundant. But um, in America today, now this is a Thomas Nelson Bible, you know, and Thomas Nelson used to be more popular than it is now. And this is a combination of the Cambridge and Oxford text that's in here. Holy Spirit is capitalized, but if you go to Nahum uh, 3.16, it's it's fleeth instead of flieth. So um, so what you have now is 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 the Basically, you have now, you have the 1611 King James Bible with any combination of these two um, modernization, you know, attempts. That's what you have today in in, in your Bible. Because after the 1800s, people got so angry and got tired of all this. They're like, okay, it's like every couple years, somebody's coming out and saying, oh, I'm going to update the Bible. We just did that. What's going on? What are you doing? And so Christians became angry about it. And they're like, no, we're, we're not okay with this. And um, people began to do something about it. And fortunately, Cambridge and Oxford listened to Thomas um, Curtis. Yeah. So they, they listened to him. And they began working on it. Then they kicked him out and they worked on it by themselves. <laughs> but, it, but they did it. And they, and they returned back to, they, they worked together to create some sort of standard so that things were not, you know, you had th- this KJV over here and you have that one over there and you have that one over there. Now that lasted for a long time, but we're right back to the same situation today. But the problem today is that you, you can't get Christians to agree on anything. You can't get them to communicate together about anything. So when the King, King James Bible is finally corrupted, the English-speaking world will disappear. America, the most powerful country in the world, will collapse. And so as long as we strive to, to conserve or preserve God's Word, then the English-speaking world has a chance. If we don't, it's nice knowing you. <laughs> it's, it's all downhill from, from, from the time that Bible is finally corrupted. It's, it's downhill from there. Now, right now, the King James Bible is all over the world, and, and it's going to be hard to, get, to destroy or finally corrupt the King James Bible. And, um, and it's not necessarily, in my opinion, I don't think that God will necessarily, though there's some historical evidence that he has not allowed the actual text to be corrupted. But if it goes that far, you can guarantee the Word of God will be in another language somewhere, and people will be using it, and that country will rise up and... And be used of God to spread God's word and and send out missionaries and do all the things that America's been doing for hundreds of years now. We'll see. I've been here one year, and between the church, myself, and Brother Keith's ministry, anywhere from three to five hundred people have been saved. Where are they? They're not in church. <laughs> Uganda wants to get saved. 
Ugandans do not want to live the Christian life. If you can demonstrate to them they're on their way to hell, they will say, how do I get out? Okay, Jesus, I'm going. <laughs> I'll take Jesus. Okay, I see you at church Sunday. Uh-uh. <laughs> I just wanted to get saved. I didn't actually want to come like, read the Bible and learn anything. <laughs> I just didn't want to go to hell. So we'll see how it goes. Oxford University Press printed the KJV, and it was a, a further refinement. Oxford University began printing in 1675. This was... this. It was said of this edition that you may never need to update the Bible again. And it seemed at this point printing errors were at a minimum, though they were not completely gone. Grammar and punctuation was at its best, and italicized words were concise and accurate. Margin notes and chapter headings were clear. All right, so it, it's, it's really kind of coming together to be something like this. Now, remember where we started. Can I, um, can I, you know, I want to read the book of John. Well, you got to go to this monastery in Egypt, and uh, you can go knock on the door and see if they'll let you in. And if they let you in, you'll see, you got to see if they'll pull out the Greek document that's hundreds or thousands of years old and see if they'll let you read it. And when I get there and they say, oh, Who are you? Well, I'm Thomas. Why are you here? <laughs> well, I'm here to read the book of John. Uh, did the Pope send you? <laughs> well, no, I'm not. A, I'm not a Catholic. I don't. I don't. Well, then get lost. You're not coming in. I'm not. I'm not handing over the Word of God, the only copy of the Book of John we have, that's on you know papyrus and falling apart. No, you're not coming in here to read it. If you're Erasmus, come on in. If you're not, then get it. Go away. <laughs> we went from that Do- manuscripts scattered everywhere in the hands of people that, that didn't let you have your hands on it to a Texas Receptus and a Masoretic text in one book to now the Texas Receptus and the Masoretic text in one book in English. And then the first printing of it was a bit of a mess. But by the time we get to 1769, things are looking really nice. The grammar is updated, spelling is updated, the printing is better, though it also introduced some errors. Every, every time they got rid of errors and they had the go, sent it to the printer, the new printer introduced new errors <laughs> that had to be discovered and worked out and, and corrected. So these are all just realities of, of dealing with men. The Bible was printed with the assist, assistance of Clarendon Press. And uh, Clarendon Press still exists today. They still make Bibles. Um, also like Allen. Um, Allen Binding. They, they print and they bind the book into a leather-bound a leather Bible. And so it's, it's just interesting that as I'm studying this stuff from the 16, 17, 1800s, and I'm seeing these names, well, they're still around today. They're still doing it. Oxford's still around. Cambridge's still around. Clarendon Press is still there. Allen is still there. In fact, Cambridge in the 1930s, when they finally reorganized and resettled on a text, on a standard text, they called it the, um, the Cambridge Concord Bible. Well, today, if you want to buy a Cambridge or Oxford Bible, it's going to be Clarendon, Allen, or Concord. Still. 
And, and some think that the reason they use this word concord is to show their, their um, kind of their solidarity to, to work with Oxford to, to create a standardized text so that they weren't producing two wildly different texts. And so that was, that's kind of the idea behind it, or so, so they think. All right, so they noted the punctuation was carefully attended to. They verified again the italics to confirm their, their presence aided in making clear what God said in the original. So they went back and they double-checked the italics. And, um, and so even if you get a Cambridge Bible today, most of that Cambridge Bible will be the 1769, the work of the 1769 Oxford. But Cambridge said, we're going to reintroduce the 1611 spelling. And, and so that, that should be, if you get a Cambridge Bible, what you should have is basically the Oxford modernization, italics, punctuation, you know, headings, things like that, with the 1611 spelling. Unless, it, you know, not 1611 spelling. When you look at the 1611, like what we printed out here, and you see an F instead of an S, they didn't really, they didn't want to spell it that way, but printing at that time was limited. Your ability to print things the way you wanted was limited. So those things had to be updated over time. A great consideration was given to chapters and chapter prefixes. The etymology of untranslated names was reviewed and translated where possible. Remember, the King James translators were told to do what with names? Not to change them unless you absolutely have to. So a lot of these changes we're reading about are directly reflected in the rules given to the King James translators. Many of these guys are making updates to things the translators were not allowed to do. So they're updating the names here, you know, the, the spelling of names... Well, in the 1611, they were, not, they were very limited in their ability to do that. Unless you could demonstrate the name was just completely wrong, they wanted you to leave it the same as the Bishop's Bible. And everybody here remembers all the rules, so you understand what I'm talking about, right? Amen. Good. I like this class. Who knows what etymology is? No, we're speaking English, not, not Luganda. Etymology. So... This is an important word for, for Christians, for Bible believers, all right? You'll hear people say things like, you know, sometimes I look up the English word in the Greek to better understand it. Well, that really is an ignorant statement, and people should stop saying it. Because at no point in your life, in any other area, did you find an English word and say, I'm going to find out what that is in the Greek. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, if you did look it up in the Greek, you know what you would find? It's the same word as in the English. <laughs> There's a reason for that, because they translated it from Greek to English. <laughs> now, looking up the etymology of a word is very different. That can be very helpful and, and, and very important. The etymology of the word tells you the history of the English word. It doesn't take you back to the Greek. It takes you through the history of that word and its uses throughout time. And so that can give you a more full understanding of a word. Uh, in fact, many preachers in, in America, not many, I know a few in America, I mean, they do these excellent word studies through the Bible and, and they're able to piece together passages and verses that, that, that give you so much insight 
because they took the time to look up the etymology of a word. That's basically the historical background, its previous uses, where it came from, how it got in our language, how it was used then, how it's defined. Even if you even if you looked up the depth, if you looked up a word from the, an English word in Greek, and you found all the the definitions of that word in in the Greek language, well, they're going to give you the definitions in English. So that's really not helping you. And then secondly. Once you get those definitions, you still don't know how the Greeks of that day used that word. So how can you make any judgment on how it should then be translated and used in English? That makes no sense. But if you look at the etymology of a word, it's going to give you a lot of that historical background. And it may not have come, its origins may not be Greek. It may be Latin, it may be Italian, it may be Spanish, it may be, I mean, it could be, it just depends. These guys looked up the etymology of untranslated names. They looked up the historical background and traced it out through, through their uses throughout history and then came to a reasonable English variation of that name. Marginal references were examined and updated. And we know what those are now, right? You have seen the margins. So, again, when you take into account the changes being made, have you heard them changing, changing words Yet, no, they haven't done any harm to the text. They've updated the italicized words, which are words that they, the translators put in there in the first place. That was not, you know, that they're necessary, but it was not not necessarily part of the Greek original. Which sounds funny, but you have to have it in order for things to make sense. So they made those more concise. They updated those, updated names, uh, punctuation. Uh, all these type things, marginal notes, and then the format of previous printings proved to cause problems with alignment. This edition took care to think about the best printed format. So they began to think through, you know, we, we laid it out in this, this format, and then when it was printed, doing it this way caused problems. So let's not do that. <laughs> let's try to find a format that is better suited for printing and doesn't, doesn't introduce Unnecessary problems. Apostrophes were added to indicate possessive forms. So we talked about that last night. If I say the example I used was Quinto and Bible. Well, if I want to show that Quinto owns that Bible, then I add an apostrophe and an S. It's Quinto's Bible. This is, not, this is not plural. When you add the apostrophe and the S, or if you do it this way, uh, Quinto's Bible. If you put the apostrophe after or before, it shows possession. It shows that you own it. Well, they didn't have that in the previous editions of the Bible. And so they introduced that here which adds more clarity. So they added that, that adds more clarity, that makes more sense of things. Uh, this was considered the great modernization project of the Bible. This edition was seen as a great blend between the original text and modern English. This is how it was portrayed historically. Now I have a bit of a problem with that. <laughs> Why'd you do that? <laughs> Now, I understand updating spelling. All right, I I, I get that. 
I, I can be okay with fleeth versus flieth. I, I don't think there's a big problem with that. Well, that's your problem, not mine. So, you know, I, I can come to terms with that. But this creates a doctrinal problem. Because the cross-references say it is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, capital. So I, I, why would I have the cross-references here saying it's something other than that? And, and you have, you know, sometimes in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is given a small s. And, and the context will tell you who it's talking about. But not in the New Testament. In fact, some people get tripped up because Paul... I forget how it's worded, but something along the lines of resolved in his spirit. Either it says resolved or determined, something like that. He determined in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Well, the spirit, Holy Spirit, told him, don't go. Three times the Holy Spirit said, do not go to Jerusalem. And then Paul said, I I am determined in my spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's a big difference. It's an important difference. And Holy Spirit said, okay, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be executed. And what happened? (laughs) He was arrested and he was executed. That's why when people preach... These are little details. This is why it's important to read your Bible carefully and to get the context so you don't preach something silly. So when Paul said, I am ready even to die for the gospel, the Holy Spirit was telling him, don't die. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he's like, I'm going. And he went. And people preach that. It's like Paul was ready to die for the gospel. (laughs) He said that. And he did die for the gospel. But he died for the the gospel in disobedience to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So these things are important. 1762 and 69 were seamlessly integrated without doing any damage to what God said. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.